is Scott Leeper and you. Hey everybody, this is Scott with the Alpha Leeper Charlie Podcast. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of seeing the continuous suicides amongst the ranks of veterans, active duty service members, reserve service members, and the negativity and toxicity that contribute to the 22 suicides a day. My mission is to recreate the brotherhood and sisterhood of veterans through embracing positivity. Follow me to learn the concepts I've utilized in growing through my own challenges and hear the stories of success and tragedy through the challenges of others. Today's episode is a pre-recorded conversation I have with Luca Jubena, who is an Air Force vet and also the creator of 22, which is a documentary on veterans, healthcare, and suicide. So I remember, I think one of the questions that you asked me initially in, in our like, initial correspondences uh, through uh, social media was, uh, uh, it was to the, the effect of like, how did you, you know, manage your transition outside of the military, right? And uh, realistically, I think it was probably a little bit easier for me because I had something to fall back on as far as, you know, work-wise getting out. Um, it doesn't mean that I necessarily had a purpose, but there was something that I could do coming out um, because... I never, quite honestly, transitioned into the military, if that makes sense. And so right. I would meet people like two or three years in, and, and they were ex-Air Force or whatever else, and they're like, wait, you know, I'd be on vacation in the States um, coming from uh, South Korea, and they'd be like, oh, uh, you know, you're, like, you're in the military? And i go, yeah. And they go, well, you have like absolutely no military bearing, right? Which was probably a little bit of working for AFN also, because even people in the military didn't think that we were actual oh, yeah. military members, right? They just thought that we wore little uniforms with, uh, you know, uh, rank on them for whatever reason. Uh, but I think there, there is a time when you do get out, and uh, especially if you make a large transition, most people move whenever they, they leave their last duty station. Uh, for me, what that meant was going from the combat camera squadron in Charleston, um, South Carolina, to uh, essentially San Francisco, Berkeley, that area. Um, and so it's a very different mentality of the people. It's East Coast, West Coast. I think it's almost one of the farthest trips that you can take from the East to West Coast in the United States. Um, and... I had been fortunate that I was working on uh, finishing up my first master's degree while I was getting out, and then uh, within eight months I'd finished that, and so I transitioned initially into uh, my second master's, right, in, in fine art um, at Academy of Art University. But um, there was a lot of people, it, it's like, you know, it, it's a very poisonous thing that I think people can run into. You uh, get out, and of course, what do you do most of the time in the military when you see old friends? People get together, they get into a bar, they start drinking together, right? And you do the math, and it's like, well, every Friday you're at the bar, and every Saturday you're at the bar, and maybe sometimes Sundays now, and uh, eventually somebody ends up leaving on a Tuesday or Wednesday, so what do you do? You go to the bar again, and you have a few beers. Um, and before you know it, tragedy hits somebody. You know, somebody dies, somebody gets fired from their job, somebody uh, gets sick with something, and um, again, it's like these friends that you've invested in, sometimes, you know, you're looking at 16, 20 hours a week that you're spending at a bar, so every, you know, month, you're putting in almost two weeks of full-time work being there. Mm -hmm. That's what you're investing into the, these people and into this group. And that becomes your, your I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that you're around quality people then. And of course, eventually you run into an issue and it might be on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. And where do you meet up? You meet up at the bar. And so uh, there were times, of course, you know, uh, thinking about suicide, which was far more prevalent than, than I think it is now. Um, and well, it's, it's, if, if, you, um, if, if you spend two weeks, um, if you spend that amount of time in two weeks, um, have you calculated, I think we talked about this, have you calculated? Yeah, well, within a year, it's like two and a half months of full-time work that you're putting at a bar and basically not living a life of purpose and, and not really doing anything that I think is um, beneficial to anyone. Right. So uh, it, it's just, it, it's bad habits that become worse habits over time. Yeah. And they become worse habits because they become default habits. <clears throat> and eventually 
you know, before you know it, before you even ask yourself, well, why you're going out and you're drinking too much, it's like, well, you might have by that point a physical dependency on yourself. And I've seen this through the whole COVID-19 thing where a lot of people, for example, now they don't have to be up at 2 a, you know, at, at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning and uh, see their boss. And so it's like, well, if you want to wake up at 8.30 and, and have yourself a double whiskey in the morning for breakfast, you can certainly do that. And people have definitely done that. And I think in some ways it's brought the worst out of people, but that's because in, in many ways they were sort of set up for failure by default with what was common for them and what you know was comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about uh, suicidality and, and uh, suicide, basically, and, and thinking about that, it's not just thoughts of going through and it's like, how would you offer yourself? Because the truth of the matter is um, I got diagnosed with cancer about three years ago uh, before uh, having surgery on it to have it removed. And I still tell people that's probably the single most positive thing that ever happened to me in my life. Not because cancer in itself is great, but it, because it made me look at time differently and it made me question well, it's like, what do you want to do with your life? What's important? And for me, what was important at the time was moving to Portugal. And so otherwise it maybe would have still been this pipe dream that it's like, okay, well, let's, let's wait until we're 65 years old or something like that. And oftentimes by, and you see this examples all the time, but you see people that, uh, you know, they both end up retiring and either your brain goes or your body goes. It's seldom neither or seldom both at the same time, but it's usually one or the other. And if it's not you, it's maybe the person you're married to. And um, then you end up getting housebound and, and uh, you don't end up going to Florida and you don't end up going to Europe and you don't end up taking a trip to the United States. And it's like, so you work 35 to 40 years in a company to retire, receive some little golden hammer that they put on your wall. And uh, three years later, dementia hits you and you, you don't even know whose name is on that hammer, mm. right? And, um, and, and so it made me look at time differently. And quite honestly, it, it's like, I only spend time with people that I want to. Right. And that doesn't always mean that I, I um, feel good about who I spend time with because sometimes you still have to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation because if you don't, you are ceasing your ability to grow, quite honestly, um, with that. But um, but so, I think- So what does that look like when it comes to, uh, let's say somebody that you've known for years or- Or somebody that you served with and, and, and you know maybe you spilled blood in the same mud with and what does that look like if, if they're toxic um, oftentimes, usually it's like, um, I compare it to having a good vocabulary and moving into a trailer park, let's say, right? <laughs> usually if you move into there, you're not going to improve everybody else's vocabulary. Chances are within three months, you're going to be saying y'all and using other words, right? Yeah. And so you get one toxic person around five people and usually they'll drag one or two down with them. And those other two, and now that, you know, now you've got three out of five and that's the majority of the group. Uh, so one toxic person can essentially do that. And I'm not saying not to help people out, but generally people want to be able to help themselves. Yeah. Um, but you oftentimes have people that like, I don't think most happy people and most content people are spending Thursday, Fridays and Saturdays numbing themselves out of the bar. And that's unfortunately the default for a lot of people. It's like, because you know, it, it, it does nothing to lessen your problems. And it's like the Pareto distribution, the Pareto effect essentially, mm -hmm. right? So what it suggests is that if you're doing something incorrectly, and you start doing other things that are incorrectly. You have a bad relationship, right? What do you do? You go out and drink. Well, you go out and drink a couple times, and then finally you meet some girl that you know tickles your fancy, and all of a sudden you have a you know entanglement or you know a, a little side relationship. Well, now that uh, you know that that first bad relationship issue that you might have been able to work on if you identified it properly turns into a drinking problem, and now you're being promiscuous. And now maybe you come back and hook up with your partner originally, and all of a sudden, you know, six months later, she ends up with a mushroom growing on her tongue because the girl you were with was not very clean, right? So that does happen to people. Yeah. And then, of course, now your problems are magnified, and now instead of one problem, you've got three problems, and what do you do? Well, you turn to drinking, and drinking maybe doesn't suffice anymore, so you, you do a couple bong grips in before, and you smoke a little bit of opium and do a couple blast of nose candy, and it's, it's um, before you know it, it's like you become this addict and 
So I, I take issue sometimes with people. Um, they, they talk about, for example, they say, well, there's a direct correlation between homelessness and suicide, right? And um, the problem that I see is it's this continuum out of which we're picking two little cause and effects out of, right? There's multiple causes and effects. And, and um, a much better way of looking at it was like, okay, well, maybe you have this veteran who has PTSD now is coming out, isn't really set up for life on the outside, never thought he would be out, and he's either getting kicked out or he's moving by his own volition. And in addition to that, like he gets out and he's an unconscionable bastard to be around and like he can't be in a healthy relationship. So all of a sudden his marriage suffers and his kids leave him. And now he's, you know, he also isn't good to be around at work and he starts drinking and doing other things. So he loses his house. He goes through a divorce. He has to pay child support. He gets back into a corner and eventually down the line, the addiction takes over and then he ends up homeless. And then it's like, well, six months later, then he commits suicide. Right. Yeah. And people want to pick the last two parts. And it's like, well, that's like you know, step eight, 18 through 20 out of 20 steps that you've jumped through in these hoops. And then maybe if you caught it in step three or four or five, and those five didn't leave through seven, nine, and 15, and then maybe you'd be okay. Yeah. Uh, but I think there was a, uh, quite, a, quite a while where I looked at both in the military and outside where it's like, you know, it, I would call it slow suicide in essence. And what I mean by that is going out and um, having not found a purpose, going out and still numbing yourself to other sorts of things. And of course, even the next day you wake up hung over, it's not like you're going to go directly to work and follow the plan that you had with whatever that is in your life. Right. And that might be different things. And that is different things rather for different people. So, uh, some people start podcasts and they start veterans groups to, to help other people. Other people want to car start a lawn care service. Right. right. But you're not going to do it and you're not going to do it effectively. And you're selling yourself short if every day you wake up and, and you're fucked up from the night before. Yep. And that, you know, manifests itself and it progresses itself into other days. And um, the hardest thing to prove is, is what didn't happen. So there's people that lose opportunities that don't even know about it because, for example, the four times that they've met somebody that could have been maybe a potential client or a, a networking, um, you know, a person on, on that sort of spectrum. Well, all of a sudden they find that uh, every time that they've run into this person or met this person, they smell like vodka in the morning, right? And their eyes are as red as your T-shirt or whatever else. Right. Um, so... You know, it goes back to the Nietzschean uh, philosophy, essentially. It's like somebody who, who um, finds the, the why can bear almost any how. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes becomes magnified if, let's say, somebody gets locked up in prison. And that's why, you know, you hear people that will say, well, you know, that's where I found Jesus. Or that's where I came into, you know, a, a very reflective state. And it's like, well, of course you did. You were locked down and you didn't have the vices of gambling and whoring around and, you know, going to casinos and drinking and doing all the other things that you did. So now you're on lockdown and now you have to focus on yourself. Yeah. And the ones that probably are locked up and don't still end up being very detrimental to themselves. So, so what comes first, the purpose or identity? Um, I think that depends. If your identity is wrapped up in a group identity, I think that's a very faulty way to go. There, there's nothing about any group that I'm a part of that outweighs me as an individual, right? And I think it's faulty when people start thinking that way because that's the sort of thinking I see on the opposite side of what led World War II and the extermination of millions of people in that mm -hmm. sort of route. And I'm talking about from both the German and the Russian side. Yeah. Does, um, that, does that include branches of the service. Definitely. Right. I, I think there's, if you talk to people that are in the, the military, like a lot of Marines feel like they need to out drink Air Force people, right? right. <laughs> so you, you oftentimes would end up with Marines yeah. and they'd come visit, you know, uh, let's say Osan Air Base, because this happened in an example. And, you know, one time uh, they ended up driving drunk on base past the security gate and the security officers were shooting at them. And I, I mean, it appears like they couldn't hit the side of a barn, you know what I mean? Because nobody was killed. But then deep down, maybe they knew they were dealing with people that were yeah. severely, you know, inebriated. And, absolutely. Um, I guess they couldn't shoot a tire out either, though, right? So, right. Uh, so you hear about people, and it's like there was a great saying in Korea. It's like the best way to uh, leave there as an E5 is to go there as an E6, right? So a lot of people got demoted there when they went there, of course. So yeah, um, yeah. I, I think uh, I think a lot of the challenges that we that we deal with as vets is, you know, I I I, I hear quite frequently 
the three issues that we deal with is transition, purpose, and identity, and 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 that's lack of purpose, lack of identity. And I think, um, you know, where the, where the challenge lies is we, our purpose is very clear. And and in this case, I think the purpose, um, well, the purpose or identity could really become first because you have some kids that, that say since they were six years old that they wanted to be a marine. Uh, my nephew's one of them. He he saw me as a marine, and and that's what he wanted to do, and now he is. Um, but then you have people like at, right after 9-11 that say, um, I want to serve my country, right? Uh, and so by serving, uh, you know, I want to serve my country and then they go and look at the branches and then that creates the identity when they decide Marines or, you know, Army or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, the issue that we have as vets is it's, it becomes very easy, very clear, very quickly what our purpose, what our identity is. So then when we get out, we feel like, well, I'm not in the uniform anymore, so I don't have the identity anymore. I'm, I'm no longer in the military, so I'm not serving my country anymore. And I, th I think both of those are, are um, very detrimental ways of looking at that. And honestly, I don't, I don't even think that that's necessarily accurate. I thought the same way for a long time. And the way I see it is, you know, you, you can still serve your country. Mm -hmm. It's how do you want to be in service to other people mm -hmm. within your country, right? Mm -hmm. Just because we're in the military doesn't necessarily mean that or just because we're out of the military doesn't necessarily mean we can't serve our country to some capacity anymore. And then when it comes to uh, the identity, uh, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. You hear that from Marines all the time. You don't sure. quite hear it as much for the other branches, but it's, it's still true for the other branches. Once a soldier, always a soldier, airman, sailor, coastie, whatever. And, um, and I think it's, it's not the stripping of the identity and purpose as much as, okay, that chapter of my identity and purpose is is uh, is written. It's over. I've turned the page. Now it's time to start writing the next chapter. I can still be a Marine. I can still be in service. What does that look like at this point? So I have a few stories that I can share about that. Um, I had the uh, opportunity once of shooting a retirement ceremony for a three-star general that mm. was leaving Korea, and uh, he had been in the service at that <coughs> point. He had he had been in the United States Air Force. Uh, I think five or six years longer than I had been alive. So mm -hmm. I have like no point of reference, right? Because of course, when you're a little shithead kid, you don't remember a bunch of things anyway, right? <laughs> you just don't. And then of course, yeah. when you get older, you start forgetting other stuff. But and some some of it's you know purposeful. You want to forget. But um, you're talking about a three-star general that you know uh, had at his disposal at all times, you know, a private driver, a cook, somebody that handled his uniforms, uh, a helicopter, an airplane at his disposal. And you go from that sort of lifestyle and being, you know, the big man on campus, basically who, where everybody knows where you're at and you get phone calls from the Pentagon and you probably have a direct line to the president if you want to and whatever else to all of a sudden, you know, retiring to a 4,000 square foot home in Nebraska. And now that 14 year old punk ass kid in front of, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a uh, you know, Meyer or something like that can just go and crack your head open because, you know, you've yelled at him and basically told him not to like mess with the, you know, the Coke machine or something like that before you go in there. Because so many people, unfortunately, I think if you look at why they went into the military and not that there's anything wrong with it, but they went in and the military sort of gives them a life and an identity and a purpose all at one time. Yeah. Right. So you go in and maybe you don't know what you, you want to do, or maybe you're 24 and you've already gone through college and you, you sort of can't find your place in life. And it's like, well, okay, you know, I can go in there and I can have a job and for four years, I don't have to worry about anything. And they're going to give me extra training or money for college or whatever have you. Right. Or maybe also you're looking to get discipline and you're getting a, you know, a, um, you're getting set up. So, in the future, you know that the, the qualities that you're going to learn there are going to serve you well on the outside, right? And look good on a resume for that matter. Um, but the problem with that is just like with a lot of police officers, oftentimes people who retire from military service or uh, being, you know, police, like off, oftentimes within six or eight years, like 80% of them have major heart attacks. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason is they don't develop a hobby. They, their life becomes who they are and yeah. they are who their life and they can't separate the two. 
And so I thought of my, you know, of this general, and I think of him often. It's one of the stories I share. It's like, well, you know, that that story is, uh, you know, the E3s through E7s, you know, getting out and, and not finding exactly what they want to do. Well, that's a lot more common. But now you're also looking at a guy who's an O3 or, an, you know, or an, an 07, 08 or yeah. 09, and um, he's getting out. And yeah, financially, he's got enough money to sit on his ass and make 130 grand a year in retirement. But it's like, how do you go from having all these people working for you to all of a sudden, nobody calls the next day. There's no place for you to be. There's no uniform that's mandated for you. There's no cook in the kitchen. Hopefully your wife can cook. Maybe, or hopefully you can cook also. But chances are you may not be able to because it's been done for you for the last 10 years. You, know? you can't give orders anymore. You can, but who's going to follow them for it, right? I mean, it just doesn't mean anything. So all <laughs> yeah. they look at all of a sudden, it's like your identity just gets stripped off with a couple of stitches yeah. for a lot of people. And I, and I saw that with, with people. And, and you know, it, it's taken some of them. I, I've been fortunate enough. A, a few of the people that I served with at uh, Osan Air Base, which was my main duty station, they came out and they became successful in their own realm. And some mm -hmm. of them became actors and, you know, they're, they're doing stuff in, in, in Hollywood and, and doing um, independent films and so other ones are doing live theater and whatnot and they went in two different directions and uh, so it, you know I, I was with a good group then that was pretty level-headed and everything like that but I've seen other ones that you know it's like part of it was I think they had a faulty disposition going in thinking that you know they wanted to go in and be you know Barney badass and be a marine and, and be on the front line and be yeah. you know artillery or something and it's like well that's great but it doesn't have a great retirement plan to it like what do you want to you know work for uncle nunzio and the mob afterwards like you've essentially <laughs> become a hitman right so what are you going to do i mean it's yeah. like nothing wrong with you know if you want to make you know 50 grand by putting a bullet in someone's head and traveling overseas i mean it can be a great vacation sometimes right i guess but um but it, it comes with its own set of responsibilities and it doesn't necessarily always make things uh you know easier right so Right. Well, and, and the other piece, is, it's kind of like all, you know, the, the, the children's movies that you see all the time where you have like the domesticated animal that's, you know, it's got the cush life inside this house. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you look at like Lady and the Tramp and stuff where, um, you know, now you, uh, they, they end up at some point in the storyline, they, they end up leaving the house and, and now they're out in um, another uh, outside and in in the wild with all these all these wild uh you know stray cats and dogs and that kind of thing and um in in at the very beginning it's like this this animal is you know the animal's character just has no clue what to do and they're scared and they're nervous and 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 things hurt and things are failing and that kind of thing but then as they as they continue going through like the storyline starts to develop into now this animal starts to create some level of street smarts and and you know they get a couple scars and they get hurt a couple times but that's just building a strength and and then when they get home it's like okay everything's everything's good and, and the whole point of that the reason why i bring that up is because you know when we're when we're in the military we're in this box we're in this we're in this completely separate world from everybody else mm -hmm. uh and and we have the walls and the walls actually even though people are telling us what to do and we have to be on schedule and we got to be in formation at particular times and and we got to go to far off lands and we got to do this and we got to do that and, and so much structure and orders and everything else it's it's crea it's created this box and it, be it becomes a comfort zone and so you know when when our eas and time to get out happens you know we're, we're plucked from that box and and we're literally put outside the box and now the box is you know the analogy i've been using is kind of like now we're we're nemo's father uh you know in this in this sea of of challenges and we have zero clue what it's bringing up and and you know why these challenges are taking place and and what purpose these challenges have and we get swallowed by a whale and shot out and and all this other stuff like the whole Hopefully finding nemo story front. yeah I, right. I, i'm not familiar with the nemo story but i will tell you just you know from what i hear it's it's really, you know, when you turn sort of as a male, you know, 13, 14, mm -hmm. you start exploring around the neighborhood. And of course, you know, you get into some tussles with some people and you, you know, might light off illegal fireworks and do whatever else. And there are some repercussions if you yep. do get busted, but that's a normal part of growing up. And that's why some, you know, shithead teenage kids end up doing some things. But 
what you really go from is um, order to chaos. Yeah. And you go from a system that's been designed for you to the system that's got so many variables in it and you don't necessarily instantly find your place in it. Because again, you walk in and you're gonna be treated differently if you're an O3 or an E3, mm -hmm. any building in the military, right? Regardless of what branch it is and what, what service it is, right? Yeah. You are gonna be uh, looked at with a different level of respect. Mm -hmm. And people are going to also immediately come to you with different questions because if you're like an E3, well, they don't expect you to know too much, right? And maybe an O1, not so much either, right? That's the way it starts out with a lot of butter bars, right? Um, Follow me. Right. But eventually, like, and, and this is why you see also, I think people that sometimes they get out of the military for two or three years and, you know, they try their, their hand and like, you know, they get a job. I worked at uh, as, an, as an airplane fueler, right? While I was going to school for aircraft maintenance and also working on my pilot's license when I was 20 years old. And uh, I had one guy there and it's like, you know, he got hired as our supervisor, but, you know, him being a supervisor and other people, uh, you know, that, that were making 50 cents less an hour than he was, it didn't really mean much. And he was trying to give orders the way that you would have in the military. And those guys just didn't give a shit, you know, and it just didn't work for him. And so it was frustrating for him when he like tells somebody to do something and what it equals out to in the long run is that now he has to do it before he leaves work, right? Because it's not done during that shift and uh, not always unnecessarily repercussions on it. And I think Sometimes, you know, four years in the military, what it really shows you above what maybe a college degree shows you in a different regard is the fact that you can put up with four years of bullshit. Because mm -hmm. a lot of it is. It's yeah. just bullshit just rolls downhill. It's like, you know, dad comes home because he had a shitty day at work. He yells at the wife. The wife yells at the kids and the kids go beat the dog. You know what I mean? And the dog ends chain, up attacking the reaction. cat. And the cat kills, the, you know, the cat kills the damn, uh, you know, fish that's in there, right? Yeah. Who might have been named Nemo for that matter, right? Yeah, right. So, um, so, so there, there, there is, a, I think, a bit of truth to that. But, you know... People have come up and asked me, it's like, well, how do you find your purpose, right? Well, what are you supposed to be doing? Because I think a lot of people generally get set up with this idea that they want to look for happiness in life. And looking for happiness and wanting to be happy, not that there's anything wrong with wanting to be happy, but I think happiness and being content is a byproduct of finding purpose and working towards it. Mm -hmm. And not being a pleasure chaser where you're going after the immediacy of things, but actually investing time in the long run of what pays off, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's the same way with a bank account. And that's the same way with investments. That's the same way if you've heard of the marshmallow test that they do with young kids right now. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, by five or six, you already know who more likely than not is going to be successful at putting money away and creating a nest egg and whatever yeah. else. And who's going to be 65 and maybe taking your order at Taco Bell because mm -hmm. they haven't planned for the future in that way. And so <clears throat> there's those qualities. And, and it takes a hell of a lot of work to look at yourself and, and separate yourself from the emotions as an individual and be like, okay, what am I doing incredibly stupidly wrong? Right. And what areas, right? right? And there's plenty of them. And then to accept the idea that actually the way you are is not okay, yeah. right? You've got, at 20 years old, you've got a, a pretty good sense of personality. Um, and, and people usually know what you are. And if you're trustworthy up until the point, chances are, unless you end up with like a you know frontal brain injury, you're probably gonna continue to be that way, right? Um, but you've got 40 years now to continue, continually work at becoming a better, more productive person and member yeah. of society in a way, right? Um, and so, you know, this idea of this, oh, well, everybody's accepted and this and that, it's like, well, maybe not. Maybe you have to accept the idea that you're, you're doing a lot of wrong things and you could be doing better and you've got all this time to figure it out. And if not, all this time to figure it out is going to be wasted on suffering through that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I said, you know, Taco Bell is an example. It's like, I've gone in there before and I see, you know, 68, 69 year old people that are taking orders from some 23 year old manager. And I have to think to myself, it's like, well, maybe you've had a, a stroke or two of bad luck, but in the same token, it's like, what did you do wrong? What did you not do as well as you perhaps could have? Yeah. And oftentimes you will find the answer and you will see it with people. Um, when I was younger, my aunt used to run a fish fry at an American Legion. And there was a gentleman that came in there 
And uh, every year or two, he had a new Cadillac, and he always left people nice tips, and he'd buy people drinks, and he, you know, for an old man, he was well-dressed and had cologne on, and he'd have different girlfriends, and, you know, in his, you know, mid-60s to early 70s, uh, he'd be taking vacations every year, and then, you know, I knew him for about three years, and I walk in there once, and I think I'm 15 years old, and they're taking donations. And I was like, donations for what? And they said, well, you know, this guy, I forget what his name was, Don or Ron or something like that. I said, well, you know, donations for what? And they said, um, well, uh, he passed away, and basically they're, they were getting at that time, I think, $650 to cremate him. You know, he didn't even have enough money to, to bury his own ass, right? Everything was on credit. And so yeah. it's like the kids afterwards, I mean, if they go to the person's house, they might have to go to their own garage sale to buy their own family photo album because the bank owns everything, right? So uh, I, I tell people all the time, I, I said, if you can, work on your eulogy, right? Yeah. Work on your eulogy. And that doesn't mean sit down every day and say, oh, you know, this is what I want written. That means act in a way of if you passed away tomorrow, what would people say about you? Would they say good stuff? Would they say bad stuff about you? What kind of character do you have, right? Are you a trustworthy person? Are you somebody that's, for example, on time when you say you're going to be on time with everything else? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it starts with really some of the simplest of things and, and, um, and, and, and small things. And if you uh, aim at being able to do some of the small things and, and break those down into minimal things... Um, First film production, right? I, I'm, I go from a short format of doing news stories and mini documentaries that are like, you know, five, ten minute promos on fighters and whatever else. And all of a sudden it's like I'm challenged with an hour and a half video. Well, it's easy to get overwhelmed with that when you start thinking about the video, not just that, but promoting it and selling out to a theater that might hold 3,000 seats and, and all this other sorts of stuff, right? Um, especially when you're like a one-man band with doing everything else. But if you break it down and you say, you know what, I'm going to work this week on just one chapter, right? Before you know it, maybe in that week you got caught up in the editing process and you finished up three chapters or you, you know, did one completely and you did two and a, two and a half other ones and that are, you know, sub done and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're hitting it in, you're, you know, you're 15% done in week number two, right? Well, what do you do again? Well, pick out another chapter. It's the same thing with reading a book. You know, if you sit down in front of a book that's 300 and some pages, a lot of people get intimidated by it and they're like, well, I, I don't necessarily want to read this thing and I don't have time, but... It's like, okay, well, one chapter is 15 pages or 20 pages. I can do that tonight. Even if that's reading a couple pages. Like, even, even if a couple pages is too daunting. Like, you read a couple, a couple read pages. Read a couple things, yeah. Right? And, and, and highlight something, you know? And, and to add, you know, in that same vein, you know, um, you know when it comes to vets that, that are, you know, they, they've got a lot of stuff that, that they're not letting go of. And, and, you know, maybe it's, you know, the, the death of their, their brothers or sisters, you know, when they were in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam or whatever. Uh, and you know they, they keep that bottled up, right? And and one of the things that I tell them, I said, I've I've, I've told them to just journal. And the reason being, one of my one of my mentors, um, uh, he had uh, he had said that if if people were just a journal one, two, or three times a day, there'd be no reason for therapists. And he was actually a psychotherapist himself. He was Sean Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And um, and so so I add to that. Um, you know, and people are like, well, I'm not going to, I don't know what to write, you know, three times a day. Well, that's fine. No, like, don't start like at, at three times a day in, in 16 pages, like write a couple sentences, just start with a couple sentences. And as you progress and you get better at the couple sentences and, and you might start writing a couple sentences and you might realize like three pages later that you just wrote all this stuff and you were the only thing holding you back from getting all of that out. I do morning pages almost every day. I do it at least five times a week. And I'll wake up and usually with one or two cups of coffee, I'll get out what I need to get out. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing it, it was amazing because I almost thought that I had OCD. And the reason I say that is because sometimes I would write the same sentence eight to ten times in a row. But you almost need to spit that out in order to get to the next sentences, right? Mm -hmm. And it's almost like doing an art show and whatever else. And I, I've told this to, you know, numerous ex-girlfriends and even current girlfriends uh, at the time. And it's like, 
you know, artistically, it's like I might have an idea that I want to go roll around with uh, penguins naked and, you know, uh, in, in paint somewhere in Antarctica in another two years. Now, are those paintings going to be brilliant? No, it's probably going to be a really dumb idea already, right? But I need to spit that out and fart that out in order to move on with the next thing, right? Yeah. And if you don't, it's this little, like, nagging child that's, like, constantly at your, you know, uh, coattails, basically pulling on you. Yeah. So you need to sort of, you know, move past that. And um, if, if people have, like, I think a year is a pretty good... Uh, uh, time frame to be able to say if you have things that are bothering you that happened over a year ago You should start handling it in a different way because obviously your brain hasn't processed how to get over it And yeah. when you look at trauma, it's really because you know when you hear of people that for example I've had to pull out a gun and shoot somebody right or I've been through a few shootings myself and stuff um, and uh, Time slows down right and part of it I think is because it's the brain's inability to process what is going on at that time uh, I think a lot of people had this initial reaction to watching the uh, you know the towers come down because we, we see so much stuff on movies and all of a sudden it's the news and this is happening and it's like, there was a good level of half an hour to like an hour and a half of just pure shock with people, right? Yeah. They didn't know what they saw and like, they weren't even able to think like, well, what else is that going to affect and whatever else? And of course, people then went into a panic and, and what would you expect? It's like, if you don't have a clear plan I and mean, you can't always plan for everything, right? I saw people that essentially it was a wonderful example of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The next day I tried to drive from uh, Detroit to Saginaw and literally, I saw people going in. There was a trailer park right next to the gas station. There was people pushing their lawnmowers up. They're going in and buying three-liter Fagos, dumping them out and filling them with gas. So the fear was we're going to run out of gas. Every asshole went out about three times more than they needed to. And guess what happened? We ran out of gas, right? How could that not happen? We just recently ran out of toilet paper. Toilet paper is a good one. I mean, you, if for about 10 grand in America, I, I've realized you could probably create a coffee shortage, right? Go with a couple of videos, go and like have everybody buy all the coffee that, that's yeah. in, uh, in a small store and whatever else. Have them get into a fight. Put that in. You do that in three or four stores. Pick a big city like New York, San Francisco, and some other place. And people are going to think to themselves, it's like, well, I drink coffee anyway. Why shouldn't I have a three or four month supply, right? Well, you get half the population that does that, and you're all of a sudden 40% over what it would take to, to keep that filled. And now we have a coffee shortage. Now them, now them Colombian beans are a whole lot more expensive. Yeah, now you're looking for Juan Valdez <laughs> to come in on the donkey, you know what I mean? Even though he's been dead for however many years, you yeah. know, to deliver it, to hand deliver it. The everything. second coming of Juan Valdez. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah there, there, there's truth to that. And uh, there, there are some situations that um, I'm still processing. Like um, I, I had a friend, a really close friend, probably my best friend, that uh, committed suicide uh, around uh, two and a half years ago mm. at this point. And there's still times that it's like some of the things that you find out after the fact, it's like, well, you can discount it and play it off to, well, maybe he had a mental illness or maybe he was depressed and there's probably that, but there's probably 20 different issues. But at the end, you, you sort of, in a way, feel lied to and you feel cheated. And the other part that you can't process is there's, there's no answer to why, mm -hmm. right? You can't go back and you can't ask him anything. You can look back at, at all the things and sometimes maybe you feel like an idiot because you feel like, oh, well, I should have seen this behavior in this person. But then again, I've seen that behavior in other people and they've been around for 20 years, yeah. right? So do you blame yourself for it? Well, maybe a little bit, and that's the initial thing. But you have to, I think, allow yourself to get angry with some things uh, in order to be able to move forward. Because if you prevent yourself from having certain emotions, um, then I, I, I think that that automatically overshadows the ability to look at the situation as what it is. And for example, you have people that go in with this mindset into relationships, and they think to themselves, they're like, well, uh, they're unrealistic. So you have, let's say, a guy, right, who goes in and he says, well, you know, if I'm with a woman, I want to be king of the house and whatever else. And it's like, you know, he's thinking he's going to meet a nurse who's making 90 grand a year. And she's got a house that's $250,000 and she drives, you know, a Lexus and whatever else. And it's like, dude, you work at Subway. You make 12 bucks an hour. Like, you know what I mean? You got to control your own life before you become the king of whatever else. Right. right? And I know, you know, a few women like that also. It's like they got three kids. 
and um, you know, and, and they want to marry some dude that's making 150,000 a year with a master's or a doctorate degree. And it's like, sweetheart, it's like all you bring to the table is a worn out piece of pussy, you know what I mean? After three people have been run through it at least, you know what I mean? And that's just what we know of from the tiny dummies you popped up, right? Yeah. So it's like, you want to you want to find the right person in life, first become the right person to attract the right person. Yeah, right? Well, and that's, and that's the thing. It's it, so many people are, and I think part of the disconnect between we'll say the working classes mm -hmm. is you know so many people look at I, the, one of the phrases I absolutely hate is must be nice. I hate that phrase. I do too. I hate I, that and phrase. I'll tell you why I hate it. But go ahead. I, I hate it because you know in. Are there some people that were born into money and fed from a silver spoon? Yeah, I think George Bush was one that he actually he actually called that out about himself. Like, yeah, I've been I, I was raised with a silver spoon. But there's a lot of people. You know, you look at a lot of big influencers now, and I mean, you look at Tony Robbins. He was raised by a, by a mother who beat the shit out of him and, and popped a lot of pills, right? Uh, but people look at him and the nice house and you know and, and his jets and that kind of thing, or you know, and and, and they well it must be nice. Well. All you're seeing is just that li that tip of the iceberg that that's that is success. You're not seeing the years of shit that they went through. You're seeing the happiness. You're not seeing the purpose you're, that exactly. got to the happiness. And, right. and and so a couple things that I found interesting about this when I looked into this as well. Money in America seldom lasts more than three generations. Right. Anderson Cooper is a Vanderbilt. He didn't get any money. He has a university that's named after his last name, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Right. When you look at the people, the biggest people that, that have made it in our time today, you look at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs was an example. And um, uh, who's the guy that owns Tesla Motors? Uh, Elon Musk, Elon right? Musk. And Zuckerberg. Um, and, and who's the guy that uh, Berkshire Hathaway, um, uh, salesperson and whatever else? I'm not that, sure, but they're um, huge. <laughs> yeah. All these people, none of them came from money. Right. All of, and if, if you know, Gary, people Gary have Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't even know who that is. Yeah, he's, he flunked out of high school. A lot of them he, do. He didn't, he didn't have they any, don't, right. He, or they don't finish college or something else. They, they were immigrants from, the, you know, from another country. Like it sounds they, like an immigrant. Yeah, you know, so. had nothing. Right, right, yeah. Right. And then, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes I think you need to immigrate to the, the United States to be able to actually see the opportunities that are here. Mm -hmm. And that's why people come here and they bust their ass because it's like, holy hell, somebody wants to pay me what a month's wage is, mm -hmm. you know, for every hour that I work. Well, they're at work 16, 17, 18 hours a day. Yep. My, well, meanwhile, a lot of Americans are like raising the system. It's like, well, I don't want to stay overtime. I got a football game to watch, and I've, I've got to meet my friends. And you know, it's happy hour. I, you know, from four to six, I got to be there for that. Or I'm not getting paid, getting paid to do that. Right, right. That's yeah. one of the worst things. And this is a self-limiting uh, thing that people do. And 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 parents surprisingly now fall into this whole thing. And um, I I know a kid, for example, that that plays on a volleyball team, right? And she has already told the coach that she doesn't want to serve the ball, right? For example, so. Anytime she gets in, even if she's doing well, within three rotations, she gets pulled out. So she doesn't even have a chance to really warm up, right? So it's like people go in. I mean, can you imagine a Delta Airlines pilot going in and saying, well, you know, I like flying and whatever else, and I'm great at, you know, I'll wait and balance and, and all this other sort of stuff. I just don't like landing the plane. Like, find somebody else that can do that for me, you know what I mean? Or a truck driver, it's like, well, you know, I can pull out and I can make it on time and I don't have to sleep much because I take meth on the side, but hell, I can't back into a place. As long as you got somebody there, I can back up and load up and, and do that or change a tire. Like, so they go in with a list of like five or 10 things yeah. that they don't want to inherently do. And my whole thing is it's like, well, plow through that, find where your weak point is and work on it or hire somebody for it. Yeah. For me, it actually worked against me to, to learn the computer design type stuff, right? It's easier for me, not just easier, but it's more cost effective to teach somebody to do that because I've learned enough things and I'm proficient enough at them that I need to stay proficient at them. Yeah. And that's where my time needs to go. If I start 
doing HTML and, and, and uh, all this other sorts of stuff, it's, it's actually going to take away from all the other sorts of things. Yeah, there, it's, right? it's, it's the who, not the how that you got to figure out. It's almost like, you know, you have a kid that's good at sports and it's like, well, maybe you need to pick one or two and not play five things, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, in addition to your, your, your soccer mom, mom's van smelling like crap, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you don't even have time in between the rest and really focus. Yeah. So you can do two or maybe, you know, three things semi-well, two things much better, one thing extremely well. That's what you're talented in and that's what you're focused on. You start doing five or six and you, it, it's just like, you know, try cleaning six rooms at one time. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Right? And especially when every room needs something different. So you're vacuuming one and you're dusting in another and it's like, doesn't work as well, right? Well, one of the things that uh, that really stuck out to me, I, and I forget where I heard this, but you know, they were talking about multitasking, how multitasking, um, you know, trying to do multiple things at once, it's kind of like that train, uh, you know, the, the train that's moving forward at 50 miles an hour, trying to stop it on a dime and turning it around on a dime. Like it's not gonna happen, right? right. Your brain is not, is, is not um, that's not how your brain functions. It's, it's function to focus. On, on one specific task, and so. Women surprisingly have a thicker lining in between the left and right hemisphere of the brain, which is why women happen to be uh, traditionally better at multitasking than men. So right. I've even had CEOs of companies tell me, it's like if you you know need up to three things done, you go to the guy. If you need like four or more, you never go to a guy, you go to a woman. Yeah. Because she'll oversee six or seven projects, right? Well, and, and my, my wife, she's good at remembering stuff too, and now you don't remember anything. Especially so, during yeah. arguments, right? That's like <laughs> when that part of the brain gets turned on and stuff like that, but yeah. uh, so. Um, so yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, multitasking five things at once is also doing four, not doing four things maybe at once, right? right? And that's another way to be able to look at it and everything. And there's nothing wrong, you know, I, I read two books at a time and whatever else, mm -hmm. and, and, and um, but it's funny because it's like a different, different part of the brain for different things. And so you can find yourself maybe, you know, when you're in school, let's say college, and you're taking four or five classes, you might read 20 different books at one time for different things, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, learning things multiple times, like, you know, if, right. if, you're, if you're reading history about Mao Zedong and then over here you're reading about uh, geography and you're sentencing and sentencing and sentencing and sentencing. You're, you're, it's gonna, it's, you know, you're, you're gonna mix things up. But if, you're, if you have this subject that you're working on, okay, now this subject you're working on, or, right. or you know, I do the same thing. Like I got an audio book I'm listening to, I'm sure. reading another book, I'm studying out of another book, right. right? Do you know anybody that watches 10 films and watches 10 minutes at a time and shuts it off? And uh, yeah, no. Yeah, so no. for some odd reason, like that's, maybe it's the leisurely aspect of it that we can just sit back as a passive, you know, observer. Right. Right. That, that uh, adds to the ability of doing that. No, and, and honestly, a good example of that is binge watching. You know, binge watching is a big trend, you know, for the past couple of years with Netflix and everything else. It's like, sure. you know, the, the reason why binge watching is such, such a big thing is because people are so focused on the storyline of a particular show, right? And so nothing else is getting done. So that's the one time that they're phenomenal at not, uh, not multitasking. Right. Right. And, and in the end, they don't even remember so what focused they watched. On it, right? they don't even rem yeah, the 20 episodes. Yeah. Um, so my last two and a half years in the service, I was basically on 11 different meds, 11 different medications. And I feel like I lost two and a half years of my life. I was literally um, like, I mean, I was taking enough morphine every day that it was the equivalent of about 18 injections if you had gone into the hospital and gotten it, right? And that was for the long-term pain release because those were the, the ones that go off in your small intestine, right? So if you mm -hmm. take one of those, it's like, well, it's not gonna do anything for pain right now, but maybe tomorrow you wake up and you don't know where you're at or you're numb to the world, right? And then there's, you know, Dilaudid, which were, was for like terminally ill cancer patients. And mm -hmm. then it's like, well, you start taking that and they give you something for anxiety because taking those makes you feel a little bit anxious, right? Yeah. And then you take that and maybe you can't, you know, uh, use the bathroom the way you're supposed to. So now they give you a laxative. So it's like, before you know it, I was up to like 11 different pills that I was taking, right? 11 different uh, prescriptions that I was on to. And, uh, you know, 
the truth is I'm in chronic pain all the time. I've got 380 discs, multiple disc bulges. And um, every day I have to wake up essentially in the morning and, and sort of force myself to smile and force myself to go through the motions and whatever else. And it's not always easy and you don't want to smile and you feel like shit, but it's like the alternative is to do what? Sit on the couch and numb out to the rest of the world. And again, like I remember one time post-surgery, I didn't even, they gave me liquid morphine in addition to everything else I was taking, right? And at that point you're, you're dead before you die. Oh, I was, I don't remember a single thing that was on the TV during that time, yeah. right? And, and, and thank God that I had, I mean, I, I think I was at times like, comatose for probably 18 hours at a time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know you are when you wake up and you're so dehydrated that when you, uh, you know, like essentially go and, and urinate, it's like a dark brown color almost, yep. right? And then what do you do? Well, it's not like you drink a, a cup of water because your body now needs that morphine, right? For pain or whatever else. So what do you do? You do another two ounce shot of it or whatever else and lay back down. Yeah. So it's, it's not a great long-term plan. It's not even a good short-term plan. Right. And all it can lead into is, uh, you know, um, well, addiction. It's, it's a band-aid on something that needs stitches. It, well, it, it's a band-aid on something that needs stitches, and in addition to it, it creates other injuries that also need stitches, and now you've got 25 band-aids covering 30 yeah. wounds, right? And you're still, like, you yeah. know, th those, these are still gaping wounds. Yep. And so... And I was, on, I was on 12 different medications myself when I was getting out as well. I, I think 11, 9, 10, 11, something like that, 12 maybe. I don't know. But I was on a lot of medications too, getting out, and it's the same thing. You, you numb out, and you don't feel things so i mean i my thing was i never <clears throat> wanted to mix opiates with alcohol right mm -hmm. so if i woke up in the morning and i was already in pain and everything like that and uh you know somebody stopped by and had a beer well if i end up in any more pain i would just have to drink more then because i'm not going to take an opiate right i'm not going to mix the two well that's great and dandy but sometimes that equals out to seven bottles of wine at the end of the night mm -hmm. or 35 beers for example right yeah. like i'd mow the lawn here and i'd probably end up having an eight pack of beer during that time it doesn't mm -hmm. take that long to mow right and you're just sitting there slamming them and everything because you can and um uh, and, the, and the same thing with opiates. It's like if I woke up and took an opiate, well, I wouldn't drink, but then you're going to take more and more and more opiates, right? So you sort of, uh, you know, vacillate between taking the two of them, right? Yeah. Um, but what I tell people about, like, you know, finding purpose, it's like find maybe something that you're good at, something that you would like to do. There might be things that you like to do that you're not particularly good at, which is okay if you're improving in that whole thing. Where in the world have you done good? What have you done that's memorable? Where have you maybe made others smile in some sort mm -hmm. of way? And it might be surprises for people. You might, you know, find that one day you go into, uh, maybe you've never thought about being a florist or whatever else, but one day you go into, uh, you know, around Valentine's Day, you go into, uh, you know, a Walmart or whatever else, and they have limited flowers and stuff, and all of a sudden you put together a bouquet of three or four different things. Yeah. And the person that got them comments how beautiful they are in comparison to what they paid a hundred and some dollars for, right? Yeah. Maybe that's what happens. It's like yeah. sometimes you just sort of fall into it, and if you're open and receptive enough, you'll actually hear it. Yeah. So, in, in last thing here... Um, um, for, for what we're talking about here is uh, I actually, I go, so I, I, that's, that's a part of it. And I actually also add, uh, so my story, I, I've taken the mistakes that I've made. Mm -hmm. How have I gravitated to some of those mistakes and, and some of the, the uh, maybe the purposes or identities around those mistakes. And now I can start to shift because maybe I want to help people in that realm. So, you know, like, you know, part of my story is I had the addiction or I'm sorry, not the addiction, the, um, I, I had the, the affair. And so, you know, uh, maybe somebody that's, that's had an affair on their spouse and then they've worked things back out. Maybe they want to help couples, uh, through, uh, the cardinal sin of a marriage and that's, that's an affair, you know? So, um, so you, so you can go either way. You can, you could take, you know, what, what good you've done in the world or, or, you know, what you enjoy, even, even if you're bad at it, what do you enjoy? Maybe find a, a purpose out of that, and the same thing for uh, for your mistakes. So, so, um, so we had talked a little bit about. Um, I, I mentioned something about coke bottles, and you were wondering what that was. So, yeah. Um, 
so the thing is, we as people are a lot like Coke bottles. And what I mean by that is, uh, when, we, when we don't talk about the things that we've been through or currently going through, um, well, first off, it's like this. When you, when you shake a two-liter bottle of Coke, what happens? Agitate it. Builds up a lot of pressure on the inside, right? Mm -hmm. On the outside, it becomes very hard, very rigid. And then when you pop the cap, it creates this big explosion, right? So, um, but if we were to pour a little bit out of the Coke bottle at a time, eventually we could shake it up as much as we want. When we pop it, there might be a hiss or it might be flat, and so there might not, might not be anything at all, sure. right? Mm -hmm. So the analogy here is that we as people do the exact same thing. When we don't talk about the things that are, that are bottled up inside, the things we've been through or currently going through, um, it creates this pressure on the inside. Um, on the outside, we become very rigid, very toxic, very negative people. Mm -hmm. and, then, uh, and then we get triggered in some way, shape, or form, and that creates the explosion. That's the, the, the caps getting popped at that point. That could look like anything from um, addiction to murder to suicide, child abuse, you name it. Sure. Right? Very negative uh, consequences. And so, but if we were just to talk about just a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of the time things that we're going through or have been through and can't let go of, uh, it's kind of like pouring a little bit out of that Coke bottle at a time. And eventually we've talked about it so much that we, we, we're, we're okay to release it at that point. Um, and so, uh, so that's what I meant by the Coke bottle analogy. Um, and, and so, you know, when we're at here, I think um, uh, the, 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 the house that we're in here, I think that played out uh, to a T, uh, where um, your friend um, and, and many, vet, 22 vets a day, and actually um, I've been told that the number is actually higher than 22. Sure. 22 is just kind of the number that's really stuck, but I think it's upwards of 24 to 28, somewhere sure. in there. Sure. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's vets, and, including your friend and other vets that you've known as well, and, mm -hmm. and, and we, I, th I think the majority of us know somebody that's committed suicide. Sure. And, and that has played out where it's something that they're dealing with internally and it creates this pressure. And, and for a lot of them, they feel at this point they're a burden. And so the, the, they get triggered or they've just had enough and the cap gets popped and suicide is the explosion. Right. Right. So just um, what were some of your experiences as far as some of the people that you've known and, and vets and that kind of thing? Uh, so, I mean, the, the one that obviously, you know, happened uh, in this house and whatever else is uh, I had uh, my best friend at the time who was renting a room out in here and um, he had called me uh, when I had gotten to Florida and basically um, it's in the film 22. Uh, he, he said, do you have your camera? And I said, well, yeah, you, you know, I'm down here for filming. Of course I do. Um, he's like, well, could you record our conversation? And I said, sure. And um, it's something I wanted to do when we were here because for a good probably 18 months I saw this sort of behavior in him that he would, you know, have days where he would spin out and have other days that he would be well and whatever else. And I wanted to essentially record him in, with the intent of coming back and playing what he said basically for him, right? And being like, listen, you need to sit down and listen to yourself because I don't know if one side of you is aware that the other side is, is talking this way. And then um, within, uh, you know, probably afterwards I find out, and this is after uh, leaving Florida, which I was there for four days and went to Vegas for three days and coming back here, um, I basically came here and found him essentially a week after he had committed suicide in this house. So uh, right when I got to the door, I already, you know, three feet in front of the door, I already smelled what I know to be death, basically. And um, it's just one of these things where, uh, you know, again, when, when you look back at everything, it's like, you know, there's always plenty of blame to go around with people. And people are like, well, why, you know, didn't you do a wellness check? Well, why didn't you do this? Well, why didn't you do something else? And it's like, well, 
you know, coming back, it's like when you look at all the options of doing wellness check, like I had done them before with people, right? And it's like, are you going to do a wellness check every day and, you know, call the police every day? Like, what can you really do with a grown individual when they choose to do that? You know, you got a film crew here and you're here. If I told you I plan on committing suicide today when I get to Iowa, what can you really do about it? Right? I mean, you beat my ass here, for example, or try to or whatever, and like, you know, you're going to go to jail, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to the hospital, come out and still do the same damn thing I want to do. And so there's... And I, and I could, I could, I mean, there's things that I could do at the onset, but, you know, like you said, you, I could, I could call the cops. Right. And, and um, I could do everything in my power. But the thing is, the person still could, could do that. And, and that's where... You're not with um, them 24-7. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, a lot yeah. of times there's people that have done things in the past and, and, and that have tried to do things for people. And, and we, you know, we always try to do the things that, you know, everything that we can in our power, right? Uh, but there's a lot of people also that have, uh, um, you know, I've got a friend of mine who um, lost somebody that he worked with and, and he didn't see any sign whatsoever. And when he didn't see any sign whatsoever, and then it happened, he blamed himself. Well, I, you know, he starts racking his brain. What were some of the, you know, what were some of the, 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 the signs? Like there had to be signs, and he starts going, he racking, racking his brain, right. and but he couldn't find anything, and that actually created more guilt. And and this is sure. where I had to tell him, like, listen, even if you could Monday morning quarterback this, like, there's only so much that a person can do. And a lot of times if somebody's going to do something, they're going to do it. And a lot of times too, the person's not even going to tell people. I had, he had done a dry run before and left a letter on the table. And I had called the police actually, because the way that he made it sound was that I knew exactly what he was going to do. Well, he didn't because he talked about it so much around the clock that eventually sort of learned not to listen to it. Or, you know, you can't always talk somebody down. Like I've got my own life and I'm traveling and I'm doing other sorts of things. And, uh, like, I had called the police one time before, I think at least twice. One time they came out here and um, they actually, while they were still here, he pulls into the driveway. And this is after like the suicide note was here and whatever else, right? And they had talked in the driveway for 45 minutes. But again, he had a background in psychology. He knew exactly, you know, what to say at what times. And again, the police were limited with what they do, right? Um, so I remember him after that time coming to me and telling me, he's like, you know, he goes, well, uh, you know, I, I know you called the cops and he goes, and I appreciate it, but I still don't know if you did a good thing or not. And he goes, I still haven't figured that out, right? That was his exact words to me. And it's like, well, how is it not a good thing? And, you know, he was going around and I think like a lot of people do experimenting with different drugs and doing other sorts of things and eventually just caught up to him. And part of why I think it caught up to him was the fact that he uh, had, um, you know, recently lost like 35 or 40 pounds. So that same, whatever substance he was taking, I don't know if they ever did a toxicology report or not, but I think that that threw off his equation on what's enough to get you like, you know, numbed out and knotted out and what's going to push you over. Because ultimately I, I, I really looking back right now, I think he still intended on committing suicide. I think he intended on doing it within 24 hours of me finding him. I don't think he wanted me to find him in the condition I found him in. Um, and I say that because he was a retired firefighter. So he damn well knew how people look after that whole thing and went through great strides to make sure that nobody else could get in here, but me at that time. Mm. So, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't on, you know, me, if you, you know, write me on Facebook and even if I'm in another country, it's like, well, either I don't have access or for example, I'm, I'm, you know, I tell people if I'm not somewhere on time, it's because my car's upside down in a ditch. You know I mean? That's usually like how stringent I am on being on time and, and keeping my word of being places. But for him, it wasn't unusual to like, you know, like bomb somebody with a bunch of messages and afterwards don't pick up his phone for three to four days. Right. 
And that was just normal because mm -hmm. he was like, oh, well, I just didn't want to read it and I didn't want to, you know, look at any messages and he'd turn off the internet or turn off whatever else and not respond to things. So that wasn't uncommon and it wasn't like I was the only person in the equation. There was probably a good 10 to 15 other people that were in the same equation, right? Um, our neighbors included in the same thing. And, and, and so, um, but I, I've had, again, other people and, and, you know, I think the hard thing is, is sometimes they're some of the happiest people. Um, Robin Williams had lived seven miles away from me. Um, in uh, in in an area like near Tiburon in California, it was just across the uh, San San Mateo Bridge, I believe. And so the day that he committed suicide, I actually went and put flowers where his house was. Now I never thought Robin Williams was humorous or funny. I think he was off the damn wall and he acted like somebody who was on heavy drugs. Because the truth is, if anybody in your family acted the way that he did, you'd probably have him committed because you'd think they're bouncing off the wall. It's a very manic state that he was always in, right? So I saw a guy that always had to be on, that was always in pain and never had the opportunity to sit there and talk about things. And it's like, you know, even David Letterman came out afterwards and he said, I just had no idea that he was in pain like that. And these are people that would talk once a week or they'd send text messages back and forth to each other. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of blame that goes around afterwards and it doesn't necessarily do anybody any good. Mm -hmm. And most of the time that you're blaming somebody else is because you're also not taking responsibility on yourself. But ultimately, you have to put in perspective that some people, it's just like, you know, I've decided, and I think I told you this, and, and, and um, even with living a life of purpose and whatever else, you know, if I had found out that I have six months left to live, if I have that luxury, um, I probably will go by suicide. And I'll probably, you know, my whole plan is, and I've already talked to the people, would probably take a trip to, uh, you know, Europe where I can get euthanized, and I'd party with them for two or three days and then call it the night. Because I don't think it's necessarily a high quality of life, and I'm not going to wait for some come-to-Jesus moment afterwards of, you know, thinking that I'm going to be healed for something. I'm, you know, I'm six foot four, I'm 250 pounds, I withered down to 200 pounds, it's like, time to go on, time to move, and time to let go, and I'm, a lot of people I think have, a, I've been around 18 people when they've passed, and uh, some of the people were, everything from people that collapsed in front of me getting off of an airplane, and I tried to revive them, to people that have been shot in front of me, I was at the shooting in Vegas with a Stephen Paddock one, so I saw people getting carried out, and a, a bunch of blood that, you know, um, followed them afterwards and stuff, and so people have died in my arms that are in very close proximity. Car accidents, shootings, other sorts of things that have happened. And uh, I think the ones that have the hardest time of being able to let go, especially when it's been a chronic and long illness, are the ones that really haven't made peace in their, their life and their, their, their day. And, you know, ultimately, uh, before I thought I was getting deployed in Korea, I remember that I had called this one girl who I knew in Saginaw for a long time who had been picked on. And I called her from Korea. And I found her online, and I think it was MySpace at the time or something. And I called her and I said, you know, I said, I wanted to apologize to you if I was ever one of those kids that uh, picked on you and whatever else. And basically we talked for about an hour and 45 minutes and uh, she told me, she's like, you know, she had been sexually abused and assaulted. Her mom would throw these parties, different men would come around and she was already servicing them by probably the age she was six, seven, eight, nine years old, mm -hmm. right? She was a girl that, you know, I remember her getting her period in class and crying because that was an, an emotional thing. And sometimes she wore the same, you know, clothes for two or three days and she didn't, her hair was underwashed, she didn't really smell very well she never had money for lunch and all this other stuff and of course as a kid a lot of people would, would pick on her and i didn't necessarily remember picking on her and i told her i said i apologize if i ever did anything to you that hurt you in any sort of way and she said she goes you she goes no she goes you actually protected me you know what i mean and i remember getting tears in my eyes and crying because it was like that right there was permission enough for me to go and get deployed somewhere and end up dying somewhere and i would have been okay with it at that point because I felt that was the one person when I looked back that I hadn't made amends with just yet. Because you, in 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 all actuality, the understanding was also you've you've written your your eulogy like like we like we right. talked about earlier. Right. You made an impact, and that was a positive way of somebody remembering you. 
Yeah. If if worse comes to worse, people are gonna love you and hate you for the same damn reasons. Like I get love mail, and I get hate mail, right? Mm-hmm. From from films and from other things that I've done. And ultimately, I don't really, you know, it, neither one. You get love mail doesn't make me that happy. Although it can be humorous, and the hate mail can also be very humorous, right? Um, and uh, but I don't think people should change their opinion about somebody just because the person passed away. I mean, if there are people out there that. Uh, think I'm an asshole and certainly there are you know what I mean and in, in their minds I may be because you know I don't agree with them politically or other sorts of things well that's the opinion they should have even at, you know post-mortem they shouldn't change that because mm-hmm. it's like keep your own integrity you know if you yep. think I was a, 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 a damn asshole then stay with that stick with that right yeah so at least I don't you know lose respect you for that because I respect far greater the kind of people that will tell you that they despise you and why mm-hmm. they despise you right um, than the ones that are going to pretend to like you yeah. just because they don't know how to do otherwise well so you said that you've you've been suicidal yourself. Absolutely. So what pulled you out of it? I don't know. Put it this way. I don't know if I even saw the ability of, of pulling out of it. There was times when, when you become, I don't want to say suicidal by default, but what ends up happening is, you know, you're on this regimen of, let's say, you know, 12 different medications, right? So that might be 33 to 34 pills a day, right? Well, you start doing that and it gets to a point where you don't remember when you took your last dose and when you, when you woke up and eventually your body's ability to naturally deal with pain is so lessened by taking opiates that it's like you might take a double or a triple dose within a, you know, a certain weekend. And when I quit everything, I did it cold turkey, which was another stupid thing to do. I think I had a couple seizures you know, that, uh, that, that weekend and everything like that. And uh, there was nobody there to... Um, you know, come and check up on me or whatever else. Neither did I want anybody there. Like, like again, it's that two and a half years in Charleston that I, that I lost my life. I mean, I, I, I lived 12 miles away from the beach. I probably went out there 10 times, right? And moving out there, I thought I'd be out there like once a week at least and everything like that, which would have equaled to be 150 sometimes. Um, I, I, I know nobody from Charleston that I had met on the outside. And the reason was, wasn't that I was a complete asshole. It was just I was numb to the world, you know? You come home, you swallow a handful of pills and it's like when I really looked at what Heath Ledger was taking, like, I don't know why I'm here and he isn't because I was literally taking all the shit he was taking in addition to a bunch of other things. Mm. And I don't know if they counteracted or balanced them out. So it's like, you know, it, it should scare you more than anything. But, but I think a lot of people also, it's like, you know, we don't know what that person is thinking about. And I've had probably a good, you can almost say between 25 and 30 people that I knew in high school that have overdosed on heroin. And it's like, I don't know if that last shot was intentional, you know? If they just went through and said, well, I'm going to inject, you know, a gram and a half as opposed to whatever the regular is, or if it was just improperly mixed because, you know, it was mixed with fentanyl or that, mm-hmm. that new fentanyl they use for elephants or whatever else. And um, nobody knows except what they were, you know, thinking at that time. And you can't take a logical mindset and think that, you know, you can apply that and figure out the why of things. Um, when I look back at certain people that I've known that have committed suicide, I, I got exactly why. And it's like the more, it's again, that Prado effect, right? The more things they did wrong, the more things piled up against them. And so they lose their job, they go through a divorce, they go through unhealthy relationships, they become promiscuous for a while and start not caring for themselves. And that's like, well, you know, it, it's probably like all of us. If you knew you were going to die in two years, you know, it's like, well, go get a couple of, you know, toothless Russian hookers and fuck around. And you're not going to worry about getting HIV, you know, something else is already going to kill you because you're already going down that path, right? So uh, people do that and then they jump on that. And it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy thing for me to talk about. Um, probably the biggest reason why I haven't done it sooner or didn't do it maybe times that I planned is I didn't know the perfect way of doing it. I always, when I thought about doing it, there was always loose ends that I felt weren't tied into and everything like that. And that might have been everything from, uh, you know, 
thinking about, well, how, how would they deal with it if I did this overseas? And like, is that going to create more problems and drama? And fortunately for me, I found the people now that it's like, you know, the, um, I wouldn't entrust my own family with my body after the death. I, I would have rather just uh, commit suicide, get melted down, and quite honestly, get tossed down the nearest gutter, you know? And I'm fine with that. I don't need a memorial for people to come and visit and all this other sorts of stuff. Um, it's, it's not something to, to waste money on. It's like, if you're going to spend eight grand on a tombstone and on some little bullshit funeral and some little, you know, horse and pony show, I'd rather you give that to people that are in need, you know, mm -hmm. send that money to people in Cuba that, that are starving or whatever else. And like, take a few people down there and reach somebody's life in other, some sort of way, but don't spend it on some nonsense just so you can go there once a year and drop a, you know, half a bottle of Hennessy and take little selfies and whatever else. It's like, I think I've left enough of a legacy where I don't need to do that. I mean, that's already, right? So anything now is just more icing on the cake, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but as far as the biggest thing that I struggle with as an individual, six films down, hundreds of paintings that I've done. I, I sell artwork and, and you know, I, I write and I do other things. And yet, I still don't have the feeling of accomplishment in life. I still wake up every day and I have to struggle with that. And that's probably what keeps me going and moving forward and wanting to do things because there never really is that aha moment where you sort of sit back and you're like, oh, well, I've done all this and done all that. And, you know, I look at my life sometimes as a separate individual and it's like, well, I've done a lot of cool shit, right? But by the same token, it's like, you know, how do you, you end up feeling twice as lonely when you're around people that tell you how wonderful you've done and how many things you've accomplished and yet you don't feel that way. So is that, is that just, uh, I mean, is that your ambition and your hunger talking or just legitimately I don't feel accomplished at all? I just think it comes from more not feeling accomplished at all. I think it comes from the way you're raised, not being given positive sort of feedback on, mm. on impulses with things. Yeah. And the opposite side of that is, of course, now you have kids that are given too much positive impulses on everything. And, of course, they get a job and they're 25 after college and they wonder why their you know, boss isn't coming every 15 minutes telling them how great they're doing, right? And the truth is it's like, well, the fact that they're paying you to be there and do whatever you're doing should tell you enough, right? Sure. But um, so... So it's, it's not a, a happy medium. I, I, um, I have a cousin who's very successful. He failed the first grade, I think it was, or kindergarten, they held him back because they spoke Polish at home and not English, right? And ever since then, it lit a fire under his ass where everything he was doing, and it didn't matter if it was picking up plates in a place or mowing the lawn, he always had a competition within himself. It gave him that competitive edge, right? So I don't know if people who are high-producing individuals, if it always comes from the right place. Yeah. I'm not okay. sure. I know with me, it, 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 it's not a fear-driven thing. It's not like I have this fear like, oh, I haven't done enough. It's more like this feeling like, like I'm already here and I'm already in pain, so I need to be able to make it worthwhile and justify the fact that I'm here and in pain with doing something productive. Because yeah. okay. if I'm not, then... So that's been the conversation between me and Luca on everything from purpose and identity to, to suicide. And that applies to veterans, it applies to, uh, to our loved ones. And so uh, in all actuality, um, it, it's, it's all a journey and it's all an imperfect process. And so um, these are going to be, uh, this is part of his story. And I've shared a little bit of my story, but at the same time, you may identify with it. You may not identify with it, but, but, but the bottom line is you can take from it the pieces that are going to apply to you. And so, Luca, thank you. By the way, um, if you haven't already, get on Amazon video, check out his video. And this is where I found him. Check out his documentary that he produced called 22. It's on vets, healthcare, and suicide. So check that out uh, when you get a chance. So, guys, thank you again for, for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. I'm Scott Leeper, and remember... Your challenge is your gift. It's not happening to you, it's happening for you. Lead yourself first. Continue to learn to communicate more effectively, first for you, then for others, with yourself, then others. And you will find the key to leading a more positive, more fulfilled life. You'll begin to find your purpose and identity. Not sure how yet? Learn more at alphalimacharlie.com.